the whole idea of assume breach is 100% legitimate. If you are not doing these things, I would say that there is a high chance that you already have a threat actor in your environment. That is the risk. This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about the basics. Several times this year, our guests on the podcast have told us about what can only be described as simple, sometimes rudimentary failures in cybersecurity that eventually led to much larger problems. Lucha Security CEO Katie Masuris told us about simple oversights that allowed her to find a way to eavesdrop on conversations in the popular app Clubhouse. Hacker Sick Codes told us about how he and roughly 10 other hackers gained extensive reach into John Deere's Data Operations Center, revealing data about farms, farm equipment, and their owners. And after the catastrophic ransomware attack on the popular managed service provider tool Kaseya VSA, Victor Jevers told us that he and his organization were actually finding similar vulnerabilities in many remote networking tools for months. About those flaws, he said pretty plainly, I am sorry, but these vulnerabilities, these are not advanced. Not advanced at all. So a theme is becoming apparent here, right? Which is that we are embarrassingly bad at cybersecurity basics. Today's episode, then, will try to answer a simple question. Why? To help us understand that and to figure out what we can do, if anything, to fix the situation we're in, we're speaking with Jess Dodson, a recovering Windows Systems Administrator and current security professional. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. We are stoked to have you here. And with that, Let's just kind of race right into it. I mentioned at the top there, right, the security basics. That actually sounds pretty broad, so let's understand it better here. What are the basics in cybersecurity? So there's, from my perspective, quite a few. But for me, probably the big ones are things like an inventory, knowing what you have. If you don't know what you have, how are you supposed to protect it? If you've got servers sitting underneath someone's desk that someone's been running for 10 or 20 years and you have no idea that it's there, how are you going to be able to protect it? How do you know that it's been updated? How do you know it's got the latest security tools and the latest security measures installed? And I'm finding quite a lot that inventories aren't being done. People don't understand and organizations don't know what they have in their environments. It's very hit and miss in terms of keeping an inventory. Documentation, it sounds so basic. People aren't writing things down. I find that particularly with going into organizations that are very large organizations, there tends to be SMEs who are responsible and are almost the subject matter experts for their particular areas because they've been there for so long and it's just assumed that they're always going to be there and they're not. I mean, things happen. People can leave. Their positions get degraded. So it's to me, I find it really interesting that people aren't writing down what they know in order for others to be able to pick that up. I think a lot of that comes back to a bit of a, a martyr syndrome as well for some of our administrators. They want to be that subject matter expert. They don't want to write things down in case it makes them disposable. So there's a little bit of an issue there as well. 
I rant about this quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Security pros, I find, and, and administrators in general, are very hypocritical. How do you mean? We do not eat our own dog food, as I call it. We will ask our users to do one thing and then we will put in mitigation so that we don't have to do the same thing. So we will have passwords that never expire ever that haven't been changed in 15 years. We will disable um, EDR and XDR on our machines because we're doing things on our machines that obviously may have consequences and may flag up in those systems and we're never going to click on anything stupid are we (laughs) (laughs) and that's not the case so I'm finding that we we're not very good at eating our own dog food in terms of we tell our users one thing and we're not doing it role-based access control A lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is around role-based access control and least privilege. The number of organizations that I go into, and again, I'm coming from a very Microsoft-centric land, so things like in Azure, global administrator, seeing 30 or 50 global administrators in an organization is not uncommon, which is terrifying. (laughs) I mean, I don't understand how people aren't realizing that these are major risks to their organization, or if they are recognizing, why they're not fixing it. So it's just, it to me, it seems to be the really little things around things that we should be doing regularly, things that I am sure that not just security professionals, but system administrators and IT pros think are boring, are mundane and maintenance work that they don't need to worry about doing. It's proactive work that a lot of the time people just can't be bothered doing. Patching. I mean, surely we're on top of putting Windows updates and installing the latest versions of our systems, right? Surely we're we're aware that this is a thing and yet it's not being done. I've been into organisations where they have yearly patching schedules. Oh, wow. The basics may seem basic, but if they were basic, they'd be being done more. There were a couple of things in there that I wanted to dig into pretty quickly, actually. And there was something that you mentioned, right? Which is like, how are folks not recognizing these as problems? That's a teaser. Unfortunately, we have to veer left a little bit. So I'm just kind of putting that out there. One of the things I wanted to understand is for organizations that don't do these things, you know, we talked about that they're important, that they're the basics. What happens if you aren't doing these things? The whole idea of assume breach is 100% legitimate. If you are not doing these things, I would say that there is a high chance that you already have a threat actor in your environment. That is the risk. This is, it's not theoretical. It's not, it's not, oh no, something might happen. It's, If you are not doing these things, particularly around things like patching and keeping your role-based access control up to date, um, Things like offboarding your administrators, the number of organizations that I go into, and Mm -hmm. they have administrators who are still in those highly privileged roles, and they left two, five, ten years ago. Things like that, they are a major risk. You will have a threat actor in your environment. In cybersecurity, I think there's a lot of the, like, it's been sort of the the du jour thing to say, like, it's not if, but when. And I like this here because it's it's moving it one step further. It's not when, it's like, oh, it's, it's today. Like, <laughs> it's already happened. There's a high chance there's someone in your network. And that's exactly it. So the idea of trying to frame it of there is someone inside your environment right this minute, what can you do to prevent them from 
getting further. And that's what I would like to see more organisations do. It's no longer about if someone comes into my environment. It's I have someone in there right now. What mitigations can I put in place to prevent them from expanding further, laterally moving through my network, exfiltrating data, compromising my users' identities? And I'm finding when you frame it like that to organisations, they tend to freak out a little bit (laughs) and pay a little bit more attention. (laughs) One would hope, yeah. Yes, yes. And the one thing that we tend to kind of gloss over a little bit is insider threat. Insider threats are still a really big thing. And missing those and forgetting that they exist is a major issue because insider threats can be really easily fixed by putting in some of the basics and ensuring that you do have your role-based access control right, your least privilege right, you've got data for classification in place. So that way, your insider threats, the blast radius for those insider threats is so much smaller. I wanted to go back to what you were saying just before then, which is that you're left wondering, you know, how are people not recognizing these as problems? How is that happening? Why is it happening? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's not being missed. I think it is being flagged and being raised in a lot of organizations and a lot of companies. The IT professionals on the ground are raising these risks and are flagging them but management might not be paying attention. I think there is very much a focus on the fire. So reactive work always tends to get prioritized over proactive work. The one that I really like pointing out to people is the JBS ransomware that happened earlier this year. I think it was earlier this year. Yeah, earlier this year. You can believe it this year. (laughs) 11 million US dollars in ransom. Yeah. How good would their defences have been if they had spent that $11 million on proactive security defence? And that's the way that I like to frame a lot of my conversations when I'm talking with particularly security operations and security analysts and CISOs is if you are going to be put in that position, wouldn't it be better to spend that money on mitigating those threats as opposed to paying money to an attacker? One, absolutely. Two, does that work? Like, because we've spoken to a lot of folks on this show, and I think one of the themes that always bubbles up in cybersecurity is the actual, like, having to prove that your job is worth it, like having to prove that your department is worth its budget and that you should, like, you know, have a seat (laughs) to work at. And I wonder if something like that, you know, a very stark presentation of money, does that work? Yes. I find that it is probably the only thing that does. Trying to drill down into the technical nitty-gritty when you're talking about C-level management doesn't work. They don't care. They talk dollars and what the business risk is going to be. So you need to talk in their language. So talking about how many dollars it's going to cost to recover versus how much it's going to cost to prevent dollars to reputation. What is the reputational damage going to be like? Are you still going to operate as a business if this occurs? And particularly when talking about technological companies, I would say that the reputational damage is going to be much higher if there is a security breach because we trust our technology companies to do the right thing. And if they get breached, the trust gets lost. You will see a reduction in revenue. You will see a reduction in that reputation. So talking in languages that they understand really helps hammer the point home. It's not like talking to 
SecOps analysts or even CISOs in some regards. They are technical and they understand the technical limitations and they understand the technologies they need to use to do this. Once you start getting higher than that, you need to talk in terms of dollars. I wanted to go back a little bit. And like you were saying at the start here, there are a ton of basics that you see not being followed. There's the, and they're very basic. I'm just going to put it out there. Things like inventory and documentation. I was like, oh, we're actually starting much more basic than I anticipated. My question is, which ones do you see getting missed the most often? And, and which of those mistakes uh, bothers you the most? So I think the dog food one bothers me the most, security people telling users one thing and doing something else because no one likes a hypocrite. And another one that I see getting missed the most often and that frustrates me beyond belief as a security professional is logging. Circular logs are the norm now. So seeing logs getting overwritten and those logs not going somewhere. People not getting hold of the logs, their diagnostic logs, their audit logs, security logs, they're not keeping them. And if they are keeping them, they're not doing anything with them. They're just shoving them in a corner and going, no, 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 we're collecting them. That's great. Collection isn't detection. If you're not doing anything with them, how are you going to be able to find the issues? How should they be used in a well-run place? I would like to see logs being used in two different ways. So you have operational logging and security logging. So operational logging is more from a performance management perspective, making sure that things are running optimally performance-wise. Those logs going in one location so that you can give that off to your sysadmins and they can do whatever they need to do. And then your security logging being stored somewhere else and looked after from a seam perspective. You need to have a seam running over it. And more importantly than that, you need to have decent investigation rules running over those logs to be able to find things that are considered anomalies, to find the things that are going wrong. If you're not doing that, then there is no point in grabbing hold of that data because it's just a wad of data that no one is ever going to look through. There will be, in some cases, terabytes of data that you cannot possibly manually investigate. You need to have a tool sitting over the top of it looking at it. Yeah, like you said, it's just going to be filed away and it's not going to be acted upon. No, and I think as part of that, making sure that you're logging the right things. One organization that I went into had turned on <laughs> file auditing at the very top level of their entire forest. Huh. And so they were logging every file change right down to the kernel level, Whoa. resulting in something like 11 terabytes of data a day. <laughs> So look, that's great. I'm really pleased you're logging all of the things, but there is no way that is valuable. No one is going yeah. to look through that, and that data is absolutely useless. So fine-tuning the logs that you are grabbing, making sure that you are grabbing the right things, the right event IDs, the right logs to be able to look through. Looking for the entire kill chain, absolutely, but you don't need everything because that's just going to cost you so much money yeah yeah when you said that funnily enough uh, the first thing i thought of it was like wow that's like that's a dream come true probably just for like like a lawyer who's bringing a lawsuit against the company <laughs> it's like well i can find it it's it if it, it will happens, be there <laughs> it's yeah it's gonna be there we know that it's there finding it is going to be the next battle <laughs> how you <laughs> right. find it in that sea of data i have no idea <laughs> Well, you just charge a bunch of people like hundreds of dollars an hour. There you go. Uh, uh, 
Insane. Absolutely insane. Something you also said here about the patch schedule, that also stuck out to me here, right? That it's it's an, an annual patch schedule, which is like, oh, that's rough. I think this ties really well into the entire episode today, the entire point of the conversation, which is why, you know, why are we bad at doing this? And I, I feel like that there's a microcosm in there with that patch thing. Why are they doing it that way? And I wonder, you know, on that one, I, I specifically think, oh, is it a time issue? Is it a resources issue? And let's first talk about that. And then we can expand to, again, why, why we're just no good at this. Okay. So there are a couple of reasons. Number one is boring. No one wants to do the boring stuff. And that's where I think automation comes into play. And we can start looking at doing some orchestration automation around a lot of these pieces of work to get them sorted. So that way it isn't a manual task for a person to be sitting at a computer doing. Part of the issue with that, though, is getting the time to set up the orchestration automation. And time certainly is a factor. And when it comes to time, it is resourcing. So we don't have enough, as I call it, we don't have enough bums on seats. So in a lot of these organizations, they don't have enough people to be able to do both reactive and proactive. They have enough to be able to deal with the reactive, and that's it. There's no budgeting for time for proactive work, which makes it incredibly difficult to get on top of any of the issues. It is simply fixing the issues as they come by without spending time on fixing why those issues are happening. Is there like a standard like number of folks? Is it that simple? Is it as simple as like, well, if your organization's you know, 100 people, then you have one to two. And if it's 200 people, then it doubles. Like, what are we looking for? I really wish it was. That would be really (laughs) nice if it was a really simple formula. That would make my life way easier. I could go in and just go, you need this many people, you only have this many. No, sadly not. It is not the case. I tend to see it depends on the user load. So how much of the work from a user management perspective is being done by the techs. And when we're talking about the number of bums on seats, it is very much split depending on how big the organization is. So for some organizations, they don't have a dedicated security team. This is admin team is their security team. So it really does depend on how big the organization is, how many users they have, what automation they already have in place to be able to handle a lot of that user management what kind of industry they're in. So there are some industries that are obviously far more load intensive than others and particularly security intensive. So I wish there was a one size that fits all. It would be nice to see more organizations pay attention when we're saying, look, you do need more people. You need someone to be able to do this proactive work. A lot of the time that gets farmed out to contractors, gets farmed out to other technology businesses to come in as partners to work inside that organization. And that's great. But then you, it comes back to that documentation, making sure that the handover is done so that the people who are in the organization and are going to be there long-term understand what's been done and why it's been done and how it's been done. And that is where I see things not really happening well. So things aren't being updated and it's set and forget. We've covered a couple of reasons here that overlap. One there was just that stuff is boring and people don't get to it. And I completely understand that, right? Like You want to do the fun stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And as frustrating as it is, I think everyone who's listening is like, oh yeah, I also hate boring things. Um, And there was another thing here like, "Oh, oh, it's resources, also valid. I think one that I'm particularly interested in as well here is 
eating the own dog food. I think that's funny because like we have that term as well, but we like to like uh, make it nice and like classy. We say drinking your own champagne because clearly, you know, we're making champagne. Um, and uh, Oh, absolutely. We are. <laughs> right. And so that seems like a behavioral thing. Like that seems like getting people to behave in a different way. And I wonder what do you do with that? Right. That's not boredom. That's not resources. That's a person acting a certain way and and we can see those kinds of actions across the board. How do we deal with that? I find probably the easiest way to deal with that is speaking to the techs directly because a lot of the time the reason that they're speaking with me is because they're trying to get some of these security defences put in place and they want to get their users on board. Now, it's very difficult to get users on board if you're not already on board. So the way that I tend to phrase it is you need to be happy and willing to do what you're wanting your users to do and show them that you can operate this way. And if you as a security or systems professional can do your job, which is far more technical usually than an end user's job with all of these controls in place, it makes it less likely that you are going to receive pushback from them. And that tends to get that point across that to be able to get their users and their management on board, they need to show how it can be done. So it's demonstrating by example. I wanted to steer here a bit as well in understanding the basics, because some of the folks that we had spoken to on the podcast, like when we spoke with this fellow named Victor Jevers, who's the chair of the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability uh, Disclosure, and they're the ones who found the, their words, seven or eight zero days in Kaseya, VSA. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just a few. Just a few, right? And Victor's point here was that a lot of these kinds of remote networking tools, they're just not built to a certain security standard. And I wanted to understand from your perspective what that relationship is, right? Is I guess I'm trying to trying to draw a line between not practicing the security basics in your organization does that lead to insecure software? Is it that simple? I feel really bad because I have some really good friends who are developers, but developers, oh my God, you guys are awful. Um, <laughs> developers are really shocking. They will take easy paths. And I understand the reasoning for that, particularly if they're talking sprints and they're trying to get things over the line. So things that they do in testing will often get pushed into production. And that's where some of those security things get missed. And I think when we're talking about DevSecOps, and I hate that term. I really <laughs> loathe that term. But DevSecOps to me makes a lot of sense. If you've got developers and operations and security all working together at the same time to ensure that when you are building products and you are building software, that security isn't just an afterthought, that it's built in from the ground. And I think that's where we're missing some of this. That's why we're seeing some of these zero days, why we're seeing some software coming out that isn't as secure as it could be because security is left to the very end. Something I haven't heard and something that I had thought might be a reason we're bad at these things, but I haven't heard it is that, you know, are we bad at even understanding these things? And that that's what I was thinking. I was like, are things just not getting through? And it hasn't shown up. So I'm thinking maybe that's not what it is. But I wanted to ask again, is there a lack of understanding? I don't think it's a lack of understanding. I think most IT professionals 
understand the security basics. They get them. So I've spoken quite a bit. I've spoken at OzCert. I've spoken here in Australia at CrikeyCon on the security basics. And you look around the room and you've got a lot of people nodding and a lot of people looking sheepish, which is they understand those security basics, but there might be that implicit assumption that because they're basic, someone must have already done them. So people aren't checking for them. So it's the, oh, no, 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 that's really easy. Someone, surely someone's already done that. And particularly when you're talking about coming in to an, an org or a company where you're dealing with an existing infrastructure. So a lot of the, we're not talking greenfields. Startups might be entirely different. When you're talking large-scale companies and organisations and enterprises, you're coming into a system that's been running for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. So surely the security basics have been done, right? No. <laughs> no. And I think that's where we have those issues, that we've got security basics being missed because everyone assumes that someone else has already done them. Yeah. I actually saw, I believe, your talk at CrikeyCon. I think that's what it was. What a name. Um, and you mentioned, I think it was just uh, just inventory and you just asked folks to to raise their hands if they <laughs> right if they if their organizations were doing adequate inventory and uh, you know one of those praise the cameraman moments they pulled out and you could see i think exactly what you just described you found you, you could see people nodding their heads i think there were two people who raised their hands yeah and- i could count them all on one hand and you could see people going <laughs> oh crap (laughs) (laughs) you're like oh this is the opener and then there was just sort of some sheepish acknowledgement just like oh yeah this my organization isn't doing this you'd hit the nail on the head within a minute (laughs) (laughs) and and i think the issue when it comes to security is that everyone thinks that it's super technical and it's really hard to get right and these basics are real. like as you said they are basic. These aren't what I would consider to be complicated or difficult to do, and yet they're not being done. And so it's trying to get that mindset through that they need to be done. And I think as part of that, racy, so the responsibility and accountability particularly, they're not being done. We're we're not seeing who is responsible and accountable for the, the systems and the software and the applications and the infrastructure that's running in our environments. And without that, if you don't know who is responsible and accountable for it, who is then responsible for keeping the documentation up to date or ensuring the inventory of that is accurate or ensuring the security of that is legitimate? Like, it's really simple, small things that don't get done from the very beginning. And as it goes along, it just snowballs into bigger and bigger and bigger until at the end, you take a look, you've got thousands of servers, no inventory, no central repository for being able to do software management or automated deployment or logging. And you're a little bit screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does sound like this is one of those things where you can get too far behind and you can't catch up at a certain point. I would okay. disagree. I think okay. it is always possible to catch up. Yeah. It's just being able to devote the time and the energy to be able to do so. So I have worked in organizations where getting an inventory sorted so that we knew what we had was really important. Yeah, it took 18 months, <laughs> but we got there in the end. The little things 
particularly in large organisations, they may seem little, and I think that's part of the issue. We look at it and we go, these are so basic, you should be able to do them. In large organisations, basic can take months, if not years. Wow, yeah. So role-based access control and least privileged, as an example, tiering of administrative accounts in one organisation that I worked, it took nearly three years to implement separate tiers for administrative accounts. Wow. And that's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So I think a lot of it does come down to the appetite for change as well. So getting an organisation to want to change and want to be more secure getting the people who are involved wanting to be involved. So particularly techs, it sounds so daft. Techs are so anti-change when it comes to how they operate and how they do their jobs. They don't want to change. So trying to get them to want to change is really, really tricky. And I think that's why it takes so long for some of these basics to actually get done. It's not that they're not seen. It's that they are seen, but a lot of people go, It's just too hard. I can't deal with that because I know the pushback that I'm going to receive. We've covered quite a few things here, right? I guess kind of trying to bring it into one thing. Something that that really stuck out to me was that the basics are believed and perceived as the basics. And that actually makes it difficult. Like that because they have this perception that someone else is going to have done it. Someone else is going to have figured it out if this organization is 50 years old and that that's not actually what it is. That's part of why they are hard to accomplish. And so, so so there's, you know, they're boring. There's the fact of resources. Something I was very interested in here, right? The fact that there's a lack of who is responsible and accountable. Like these are policy decisions. These are people not being identified. And all of these things, they have a, a very tangible effect in businesses. And what I wanted to understand is how do the cybersecurity basics, I want to kind of pull it apart if necessary for listeners to have them understand the relationship between personal cybersecurity basics and and business cybersecurity basics. And kind of simply here, are they different in any way? Yes and no. So there are similarities in what needs doing. The differences are in who's responsible and trying to divide that up can be really tricky. So when we're talking about personal cybersecurity basics and what you need to do for yourself, they are very, very similar to a lot of organizations. Using MFA, having EDR on your on your machine, utilizing encryption, except you're the one responsible for it. But when it comes to organizational and business cybersecurity basics, a lot of that will sit with a technical team, but also business processes. And I think that's where a lot of it gets missed. You need to get the business processes in place and bring them along for the ride in order to change a lot of this. And that is why it's probably not done in business as opposed to personal and why personal cybersecurity basics are probably more familiar and more widely understood than business cybersecurity basics. We've covered so much, right? And I think there's different attack plans for all of these. How do we fix this? How do we fix what we're in? Because these are leading to real circumstances. Like there's there's real consequences here. And we could go, you know, one by one, you know, through the various problems that we've identified. But let's open it up super broadly. How do we fix it? Uh, I find yelling into the void 
helps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my way. That's so, at least the way to start the day, you know? It's a good, Prep- yeah. So <laughs> I tweet quite a lot and I do rant quite a lot about a lot of these cybersecurity basics because I don't just want to keep it to myself. I, I am very much an educator. I want more people to be doing the right thing. And when it comes to cybersecurity people in organizations, the biggest thing that I can tell you is to be passionate and to be persistent. What that comes down to is just be really, really annoying. Because <laughs> <laughs> you are the only one who will help push this forward. If no one takes responsibility for it, if no one is willing to speak up, if no one is willing to put their hand in the air and say, we need to fix this and I am going to champion it, it will never get done. So we need champions of cybersecurity in organisations willing to say, I am going to help fix this. And if we don't have that, it's never going to get done. I feel like this is actually a pretty tough question here, which is what happens if you have an organization of a lot of folks who just don't have an interest in being champions? Bad things happen. (laughs) That's probably the very polite way I could put it. Bad things happen. If there are no champions in an organization and security goes by the wayside, there is, I would say, a 100% chance of them becoming breached, data being exfiltrated out or ransomware attacks occurring in terms of things happening inside of their environment. It's, it's going to happen. If the basics aren't done, if there isn't a champion trying to fix up all of those small things, you will have standard users with administrative access on their machine so they can install stuff. You will have data that is exposed to the outside world in storage where anyone can grab hold of it and download it. You will have user accounts that have leaked passwords and credentials that are currently being used by malicious actors inside of your environment because the basics aren't being done. And that's the realistic idea of what will end up happening. If you don't fix it, someone will take advantage of it. I wanted to follow up on that question of champion, right? Because, and I I may be getting a little too hung up on the word champion here, which is fine. That happens. And uh, I think the reason is because I could see a lot of people at home who are in these positions who are saying, I'm too burnt out. I can't be, I can't be a champion. I can't do these things because, you know, my job that was supposed to be equal parts proactive and reactive is now a hundred percent reactive. And, that's kind of what I'm that's kind of what I'm trying to get at here is what if we're just creating circumstances where we're burning people out so that they cannot rise to the occasion of of what should actually be standard responsibility. Absolutely. And burnout is a major thing and I can say that in my last job it is one of the reasons why I actually left because I was one of the only champions <laughs> who had been yelling into the void for nearly 8 years and people weren't paying attention. And I think when you get to a point where your yelling is no longer getting you anywhere, as hard as it is for me to say this, I think that is when it is time to start looking elsewhere. Because if you are burnt out and your expertise and your knowledge and your skills aren't being acknowledged and aren't being, I would even say, admired, then what is the point in staying there? You were hired to be an SME. You were hired to do this job. And if management and your organization aren't paying attention when you are saying things need doing, why are you there? I really enjoyed that. (laughs) I think that's particularly important. And I think folks need to hear that kind of stuff. 
I get really, really upset when I go into organisations and there is a lack of trust from management towards their staff. If you don't trust them, why did you hire them? And making sure that they have the ability to do their job to the best of their ability and letting them do their job to the best of their ability is how you get the most out of people and how people don't suffer burnout because they enjoy what they're doing and they feel that what they are doing is valuable and being valued. And if that isn't the case, you will end up with burnout and you will end up with people leaving. So organisations need to trust that their staff are telling them the right things. And I get very personally affronted when I am brought in as a consultant and I am saying exactly the same things that their internal staff have been saying for months and yet my word is taken over theirs. That should not be the case. Yeah. I assume it's extraordinarily demoralising for the folks who have been saying it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've been in that position. So I know how frustrating it is. And I don't think it's fair for internal staff who have such a a wealth of knowledge of their organisation and the infrastructure they're running and of the applications and systems to be seen of as less they have way more knowledge than I do. Sure, I might have knowledge of best practice and some of the newer stuff, but when it comes to internal organisational infrastructure knowledge, they know way more than I do. So why aren't they being paid attention to? So I think it would be really good, and I, I, I hope it gets through to some security managers and CISOs that they need to pay attention to their own internal security staff when their security staff are saying, we need to do this. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's just like, it affects so much of an organization, right? And and I feel like it's another response to like, you know, why aren't the basics getting done is because some people aren't paying attention. And that is dangerous. And it produces a bad environment. There's no way around it. And I think you are very right in that there are people who are burnt out and feel they can't be champions. And I think the reason that they are burnt out is because it's likely that they have been trying to talk about this stuff for a while and no one is listening let's hope they get listened to i hope so i really do i want to see more i want to see more security professionals actually being able to put their hand up and say we need to do this and management going absolutely here's money (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you know i know that there are so many ways that security folks have to talk to other segments of the business to again prove themselves and prove investment in the things they're trying to do. I did love learning that thing that you said that like, okay, do you want to spend, you know, 10 million plus dollars on responding to attack? Or do you want to use that proactively beforehand so that it doesn't happen? Absolutely. And even like, I mean, just a fraction, like 10%. Right. They paid 11 million. Yeah. Just look at $1.1 million on shoring up your defenses. We could do a lot with $1.1 million. Like there is a lot you could do with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's it. We're not saying the full 11 million though. I'll take that. No, just, just a little bit. I'll take just a little bit of that just so that we can fix it up so that it doesn't happen. And things like that ransomware, like that's the thing that frustrates me. Ransomware attacks are so easily fixed. Like, the things that you can do to prevent that ha- backups why aren't people doing backups and testing them <laughs> like surely this is a no-brainer apparently not 
You would never need to pay a ransomware attacker if you were backing things up correctly, testing your restores and off-siting your backups so that they weren't attached to the systems that are ransomware. This is really basic stuff. Yeah, this is so funny. We just spoke to someone about backups and and one of the questions we had is like, well, you know, the question is, we spoke about JBS. I mean, this really relates. We spoke about JBS and they had backups, but they weren't, you know, apparently they weren't implemented well enough so that they still had to resort to purchasing a decryption key. And so we asked a simple question, you know, like, what's going wrong? Why are these not working well? And and the fellow we spoke to named Matt Crape just said, the biggest mistake is people don't test them. And he's like, a real test of them, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you back it up, but you never restored it, did you ever really back it up? There it is, yeah. <laughs> That's the big one for me. Like, if if you don't test them, how do you ever know that it was actually backed up? I think it's funny because I, I would say that you are likely the first person I've ever heard say ransomware is easy to deal with. <laughs> well, I would say from my perspective in terms of the mitigations, after the fact, definitely not easy to deal with. Before the fact, there is so much we can do to prevent a ransomware attack, preventing lateral movement, restricting administrative privileges, ensuring users can't click on stuff, putting role-based access control in place so that way they only have access to the data that they need access to up in shared file servers, looking at XCR and EDR on their machines to prevent things from running, looking at running your backups and testing your backups, ensuring that you have logging so you can track when things like this are going on. There are so many things to put in place beforehand that can prevent an attack of that size. We're going to release that, like those 30 seconds, just as our ransomware backup, like recovery plan. Like that's, that's, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be like a side episode, you know, that's uh, and people just get an MP3. <laughs> 30 seconds. This is what you need to do to ensure <laughs> that you don't have a ransomware attack. <laughs> Jess, that is all I had today. I had so much fun talking about all this. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. As you can tell, I like ranting about it. It's it's fantastic. I I love listening about it. And I hope our listeners do too. So again, I just wanted to thank you so much for being on today's show. Thank you very much for having me. It was lovely. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we dig into why the internet provides such an unequal and unfair experience for women. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.